Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. When the NFL came to be, the stars were few and far between. There was Jim Thorpe and Red Grange, Curly Lambeau, Jimmy Consulman, to name a few. Of course, there was George Hallis, too. But there was another, a name that is often overlooked, and on this episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes, I'm going to go back in time to explore the career of one of football's most legendary figures, the career of a true forgotten hero of the game, Paddy Driscoll. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes, episode number 112, Patty Driscoll. For those unfamiliar with the name, Driscoll was a star for the Chicago Cardinals when the NFL was born. Actually, in its first year, the NFL was known as the APFA, the American Professional Football Association, and Driscoll was its first ever all-pro quarterback. But Patty was so much more than just a quarterback, and I'm going to talk with one of the most foremost experts on Driscoll and the Cardinals, Joe Ziemba. Now for some, this might be the first time you're listening to Sports Forgotten Heroes. For others, maybe not. So for the newbies, thanks for jumping on. For the rest, I want to thank you for listening and coming back after my hiatus. It's been a while. Thankfully, my health is good. And when Sports Forgotten Heroes went on hiatus, it had nothing to do with health. Rather, a few other types of personal issues arose, including a move, and I had to evaluate how to balance life and work and this podcast. The last thing I wanted to do was promise an episode every other week like I had been doing for over four years and then become inconsistent and not deliver. So, a self-imposed hiatus until I could figure it all out, and I'm happy to say, I think I have. In fact, this episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes is the first of several that I have already recorded, and I hope to be able to continue to bring you the content you love. Interviews with some of sports' great researchers, writers, and terrific authors. People like you and me who love the games we watch and who love the history as well. As many of you know, I love the history of sports. 
read about it, and talk about it all the time. So, what better way than to share my passion with you and bring you the stories of some of the greatest names to have ever graced the fields of play, some of the teams that are no longer with us, and to every once in a while visit with a superstar of yesteryear whom time has forgotten. So again, thanks for tuning in and listening, and I hope to regain your trust and you come back and visit and spread the word about Sports Forgotten Heroes so your friends, so your family, and your co-workers can listen too. As always, if you can, please give Sports Forgotten Heroes a five-star rating and write a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow on Twitter at SportsFHeroes, where I make posts every day, And check out the Sports Forgotten Heroes page on Facebook and visit sportsfh.com where I have more content about the forgotten heroes I talk about, links to their stats, highlight films if I can find them, links to the books my author friends have written, and you can always send me a note on Twitter or by sending me an email. I have a new email address for all of you. It's sportsfh.info at gmail.com. Again, that's sportsfh.info at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Send comments about the show, suggest topics, or send in a question you'd like me to ask about a future topic, which, by the way, you can always see which forgotten hero I will be talking about by visiting sportsfh.com and clicking on the calendar. Hey, I'd also like to mention that Sports Forgotten Heroes is a member of the Sports History Network. Okay, enough of that. Thanks for letting me ramble on. Let's get into today's show about Patty Driscoll. Ah, before we do, just one other note. I was on the road for the recording of this episode, and while the audio is good... It's not the usual crisp, clean audio you might be used to. I'm not going to get into the details of how I record a show, but I promise it's still a great show. So now, let's get into it with my guest, Joe Ziemba. Joe, welcome back to Sports Forgotten Heroes. It's been a while, but thrilled you are back with me. Warren, thank you so much. Uh, your program is so well-respected and so informative. It really is an honor to be with you again. Uh, please let me know when I mess up. I'll do my best. <laughs> well, you you don't mess up. It's usually me. Um, hey, man, thank you so much. Kind words. Um, let's get into it. Patty Driscoll. I mean, what makes Patty Driscoll such a legendary figure? He is a player that I think needs continuous respect, not only because of his impact as a player and a coach and a head coach uh, through, through the early days of the NFL, but he was really a dominating player despite being about five foot seven and maybe 150 pounds. 
And what a lot of people don't know about Patty was he played three professional sports, which even in the 20s was kind of rare. He was a pro baseball player, the Chicago Cubs. He played some pro basketball with the Whiting Red Crowns. Probably never heard of that. I never did. And of course, (laughs) a pro football player with the Chicago Cardinals and the Chicago Bears. And in everything he played, he dominated, but he was a a very skilled player coming into the pros. Uh, We can talk about his time with the wonderful Great Lakes Naval Station team that won the Rose Bowl and even his college career. So Eddie Driscoll, uh, small in stature, huge on heart and ability and a Uh, Just a very deserving member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Sure. And, yeah, let's just address it right right off the bat. The Cubs, just in case anybody didn't know, he suited up for them in 1917. Um, Didn't last long, just one season, but he didn't give up on his baseball career so easily. He also played for the Los Angeles Angels, who at that time were in the PCL, the Pacific Coast League, in 1919, where he fared a little bit better. So what can you tell us, if anything, about Patty's exploits in baseball? And by the way, that's Patty, P-A-D-D-Y, not P-A-T-T-Y. You know, he played a couple games for the Cubs, uh, batted around, you know, 100, but did hit 264 for the Angels. And, you know, that's when the PCL was almost like a second major league. And uh, and by the way, he was an infielder. So what, if you can, tell us a little bit about his exploits on the diamond. First of all, he's known for his speed, but he was also a clutch hitter. As you mentioned, he was an infielder playing second base, third base, shortstop primarily. And he did get a shot with the Chicago Cubs after hitting, as you said, a rather woeful 107 in 1917. He was uh, moved over to the Los Angeles Angels after he, uh, uh, the next year, I believe, 1918. And, uh, oh, 1919, I'm sorry. Uh, he was in the service in 1918 with the Great Lakes baseball team. And he hit a little better, as you mentioned, about 264, but he never stopped playing baseball. When he came back to the Chicago area, he was from Evanston, Illinois. He played with a semi-pro team called the Piots, P-Y-O-T-T-S, and he was their leader for years. And he would play against other, other individuals such as George Hallis, who never stopped playing baseball either for a long time. And ironically, the, traditionally in these uh, leagues in the Midwest, would have their final game on a Saturday and Sunday would mark the start of the NFL season. So either they either did both sports for a while in preseason or just moved right from the diamond uh, over to, to the pro football situation. But as you mentioned, the Pacific coast league, when major league baseball had not yet expanded that way, they really had stockpiles of great players and Eddie Driscoll was one of them. And either he was uh, I know he was about to get married or got married. Uh, Well, he got married later in the 20s, I'm sorry. But maybe being away from Chicago for still another long summer was too much for him. And he came back and he he played with the Piots. And what about his career as a basketball player? What can you tell us about that? He was known, I've noticed in some of the newspapers, as a dead-eye shot. 
And in those days, they they had the old set shot, a uh, lot of passing, not too much dribbling with the heavy basketball, not much strategy, a little bit of low scoring games. But it appears that he was a reliable defender and he could score a lot, but he was very unselfish. Uh, he was one who was considered if he didn't score points, he was still very valuable to the team, uh, whatever level he played at. And that seemed to be uh, pretty consistent with whatever sport he played, that he was a team player and wasn't always looking for individual accolades. And so that was certainly true on his basketball team where one night he might, might hit 10 points uh, as the waiting team traveled around the Midwest and other nights he would not score a point, but the team would win and he would be receiving accolades for his defensive prowess on the basketball court. Yeah. I mean, obviously he was an all around terrific athlete and it really showed on the gridiron. Tell us about the type of player he was. I mean, this guy played quarterback, halfback was a drop kicker. Where did his love from the game come from? How good was he? Yeah, when he started playing, I believe, at Evanston High School, then went to Northwestern, played in 1915 and 1916. He made the second team all Big Ten from the All-Western Conference back then. And uh, I think he was from the first team All-Western Conference, second team All-American, uh, excuse me. And he just had a love for sports. He was able to play different positions, as you mentioned. I believe later he was all-pro as a quarterback, the first all-pro quarterback, uh, when that uh, precursor for the NFL started in 1920. He was also an all-pro at halfback, a deadly drop kicker, considered the best drop kicker and kicker in the early 20s, set a drop kick field goal record that lasted for, uh, I think, about 30 years at one time. And sometimes we forget that these guys also play defense. So he would be uh, playing what we might call a safety as well as returning punts and, and kickoffs. So he was all over the field, rarely came out. And then in his first three years with the Cardinals, he was also the head coach. But he had gotten quite a reputation around the Chicago area. He was actually declared ineligible in December of 1916 at Northwestern. And may have been because he signed a contract with the Chicago Cubs that time pros and colleges did not mix as you know and so that's when he began playing with with different teams he played with the Cubs in 1917 but he was also starting to play football with the professional teams in Chicago for example the Hammond team uh, in 1917 I think they were called the Clabbies back then eventually they became the Hammond pros uh, he also played with a team from Evanston and that's where uh, the Cardinals owner, Chris O'Brien, first saw him in an indoor game in, I think, early 1918. In fact, Petty Driscoll was knocked out. They were playing in a place called the Dexter Pavilion, which paved the way for the International Amphitheater many years later. Uh, they didn't have the safety uh, requirements that we have now. So they had these walls uh, from livestock shows that surrounded the field. Paddy one time uh, was knocked out, stayed in the game, didn't know where he was, still kicked a field goal. Uh, and that's we think where O'Brien first got a glimpse of him because he was uh, he played with Evanston, but then he switched over and played a little bit with what was known as the Racing Cardinals, the uh, predecessor of the Chicago Cardinals. So that was uh, way back 1917, 1918. And then he 
the war came, right. and as most young men did then. Well, let, before we before we move on to that, let's let's go back. First of all, I gotta know what's a clabby. <laughs> Good point. Actually, I think the name comes from a fighter named Jimmy Clabby, who uh, sponsored the team. Oh, so there you go. That, that's what I'm I'm remembering. You know, I'm, I'm aging rather rapidly, so I could be wrong. But, uh, I think it was uh, Clabby the boxer sponsored the team, so he got the name. <laughs> All right. So they were the the Hammond Clabbies. Um, and as you said, I mean, he was a heck of a player. Uh, he led the Clabbies to what was then called the Indiana State Championship. And he proved his prowess on the football field, on the gridiron, his, his abilities, um, you know, against teams like Wabash. They won 20 to nothing and he scored all 20 points. Uh, they beat a team called Pine Village. And he scored all 13 points in a 13-0 win. And you just referred to it, the field goal, uh, after being uh, knocked unconscious in a game against Cornell, he comes back to drop kick a 55-yard field goal <laughs> in a game that they win 13-3 to against Fort Wayne. He goes out uh, in a 25-0 win. He scores three touchdowns. And and kicks an extra point, um, made the Indiana State All-Pro team in 1917. I mean, this guy was a real talent. And again, like you said earlier, for whatever reason, Hattie Driscoll is a name that we have to keep talking about in order for people to remember him and know who he was because this guy was a star but i think a lot of his great play might have happened before the nfl really got going i mean he had a great nfl career um you know a while back joe i did an episode of sports forgotten heroes with chris serve episode 91 it was called war football and we discussed how the college game was altered by World War I. And in 1918, Driscoll played for that really very talented Great Lakes Navy team that won the Rose Bowl, again, as you said, over Mare Island, 17 to nothing. And Patty was a key component to the Great Lakes team. He opened the scoring with a 30-yard field goal and later connected with George Hallis on a yes. pass. Tell us about Driscoll at Great Lakes and Driscoll, the college player at Northwestern. I mean, his talents at Northwestern were recognized right away. Tell us about the young Patty Driscoll. Young Patty, who was the son of uh, an immigrant father, uh, and I said, went to Evanston High School where he first learned how to play football, and Northwestern is located in Evanston. So it was a natural progression for him to go there back in uh, 1915 and 1916 uh, to play those couple of years. But you will notice throughout his career, it's pretty consistent. He could score. He could kick, he could play defense. He used his speed 
some of the description described him as the, the zigzagging Patty Driscoll, uh, the speedster from Evanston, all these great terms that, that came up with him. But as, as Chris Serb is the best when it comes to talking about war football noted uh, that he was with the Great Lakes team. And, and you may wonder, or people may say, well, how did Great Lakes play in the Rose Bowl? And as you mentioned, they played another service team because a lot of colleges just discontinued football, not only because the war where a lot of their players were in the service, but we were also in the, another midst of a unfortunate influenza, the Spanish flu, which was devastating yeah, exactly. at the time. So Driscoll was, uh, again, one of his progressions was to enlist, as did George Hallis, and they landed on this team that, uh, I've talked to Chris Serb about this, that actively recruited athletes to be in the service. They figured that if their service team was successful, it would give more uh, more of a positive reputation for them and for the military and encourage others to enlist and join in the service for World War One. Unfortunately, the war came to an end at the end of 1918. But while he was at Great Lakes, and I believe there were 16 or 17 players from that football team that eventually played in the pros. They had all Americans. The baseball team was the same way. They had major league players. And of course, this was a year or two before the, the beginnings of the NFL's American Professional Football Association started. So uh, Driscoll was, was the quarterback. Uh, he ran things. He was uh, playing with Jimmy Councilman, another Hall of Famer. Yep. Uh, had several great players. And you mentioned the Rose Bowl. So Great Lakes was invited to go play as the representative from the Midwest against the Western champions, the Mare Island. Driscoll uh, had a, a great description of him in the Los Angeles time, which called him the little knock-kneed Irishman that was bedeviling the Mare Island gridiron players. And as you said, he kicked a field goal and get things started through a long pass to Hallis. Another uh, touchdown was made. And so he pretty much uh, helped account for all the points they scored that day. But again, as we saw at Evanston High School, University of Northwestern University, and with the Great Lakes, Driscoll was all over the field. And for his time with Great Lakes, he was named first team all service, which is similar to all American back then. Sure, sure. Um, but after that, he thought he was done with football. He thought he would get baseball another shot. Uh, that's when he got traded to the Angels. So as we as we saw throughout his career, uh, he, he was very successful at what he did, whether it was on the offensive side or the defensive side. Well, that Great Lakes Naval team was certainly a stud team with so many players on it, like you said. They went 6-0-2. Oh, um, in one game, Patty scored six touchdowns, my research yeah. tells me. So, I mean, they were a terrific team. And after that, he went on to play for the Clabbies. Um, and after that is when his, like you said, uh, NFL career sort of started. He first played um, with Racine. And I did an episode with you, uh, episode 88, about the Chicago Cardinals. And Driscoll actually lined up for the Racine Cardinals. So quickly, give us a little refresher. Most people wouldn't know this, but... The Racine Cardinals are sort of, they're still around. Who are the Racine Cardinals? 
<laughs> the racing Cardinals today are down in the Phoenix area called the Arizona Cardinals. Hard to believe, but they are the oldest existing NFL team, getting their start back in 1899. And they had different names. At the beginning, they were called the Morgan Athletic Association, which was be they were just a bunch of kids. Chris and Pat O'Brien were the two brothers who started the team. Just a Sandlot or Prairie team. They were teenagers. They eventually merged with a social club called the Morgan Athletic Club in 1900. And from there, they broke off several times. Once they were the normal athletic club called the Normals. And then uh, they became the Racine Cardinals when they moved to a new field on Racine Avenue in Chicago. And Chris O'Brien uh, lived on Racine Avenue a couple of blocks north of where the field was. And so they took that name Racine Cardinals. In 1920, though, there was some confusion because there was another racing uh, football team that was playing. And so O'Brien decided to name his team Chicago Cardinals, which uh, would envelop the whole Chicago area. Uh, he had some competition. There's also a team called the Chicago Tigers. But that's where the Racine Cardinals come in. Actually, the full name, which is, and I can't make this up, Warren, and the, uh, I was able to get a copy of their incorporation papers. They were called the Racing Cardinals Social and Athletic Club. And you can't really make that name up, but it sounds like something more uh, negative than a football team. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. Well, Racine was a part of the first incarnation of the National Football League. It was known, mm -hmm. as you said, the American Professional Football Association. And Racine was a pretty good team, and Driscoll was its star. They went 7-2-2 two two that first year, and Driscoll was the first ever all-pro quarterback. He was, yes. Tell us about that Racine team, that first, in, you know, in 19... Uh, uh, 20, the Racine Cardinals. Tell us about that team. How good were they? And, and, and well, yeah, what can you tell us about that team? That team made a huge jump from being what we would consider a prairie team or semi-pro team in Chicago. They were not dominant, but they were very competitive in what was called the Chicago Football League at the time, which was a loosely structured organization. But I give them credit because they – uh, put together a preseason schedule. Chris O'Brien served as president of the league. And he, of course, recruited all the players. He didn't have a big budget. He relied on um, other donations from the neighborhood. And one of the uh, one of the neighbors, I should say, who helped him out was a 19-year-old guy named Jack Glenn. And he left behind some notebooks that listed where the players lived, and they were all from the south side of Chicago, pretty much, uh, that um, O'Brien was able to recruit with the help of Jack Glenn. And the team was tough, though. They, um, they practiced under streetlights, basically, because everybody back then had to work. A lot of them worked in the nearby Chicago stockyards. And Chris O'Brien was said to have painted a football white. So with the streetlights... Uh, in this one park with the white football, they were able to get together and have practice. Uh, but as you mentioned, they had a very good record. Uh, most noticeable is their two wins, uh, their 
the first one of the year was a win against the Decatur Staley's, which was the only loss. George Ellis had the Decatur Staley's at that time. Now the it was a seven to six Lord. game played at tiny normal park on the south side of Chicago at 16 Racine. And Ellis, if he was still alive today, would still complain that back in 1920, there was crowd interference that allowed the Cardinals runner to sneak in behind the card uh, card followers that were lining the field and elude the Bears tacklers for the for the winning touchdown. And then Patty Driscoll again hit the extra point for the win. So this was a good team. Hallis had gone out and recruited widely across country. He was able to bring players in, have daily practices, plus the players got paid a decent salary to work in the Staley plant down in Decatur, Illinois. And whereas Chris O'Brien's team had a really find out times when they could all get together to practice. And if they couldn't get together to practice, they would get together before the game and run through plays or maybe talk about the opposition. But they, they had a decent team. They were up near the top of that first league, uh, first uh, schedules, standings, I should say, for the NFL in 1920. So a very confident, determined, and competitive team. Not dominant, but they had Patty Driscoll and. He was the uh, highest paid player in the league at $300 a game. And most of the players are getting $10, $25 a game, plus whatever they could bet. I understand that they would not be reluctant to place bets on themselves at the time, something football tried to ignore for many decades. Uh, but with Patty Driscoll there scoring a lot of points, either with his foot or his running ability, they were uh, a team to be reckoned with. Now, before we get to 1925, the big, for the first big year, real big year for the Cardinals, um, a couple things happened along the way between that first year and 1925. On 21, Driscoll was a player coach for the Cardinals. Mm -hmm. um, he played quarterback, he played halfback, kicker, punter, and, and like I said, he coached um, in 1923. Uh, they were a really good team again. So in 1921, they were six, three, and two, and 23. They were eight and four. Um, I mean, this was a decent team, very competitive team. Um, who were some of the other great players in the NFL during Patty's career? And how did he compare? Because the biggest man that jumps said, out. Right, because you said he was the highest paid player in the league. So mm -hmm. how did he warrant that kind of payday? Tell us mm -hmm. about that. No, that's a great question. There, there actually was a bit of a bidding war between George Ellis on the Decatur Staley's and Chris O'Brien of the Cardinals for Driscoll Services. Ellis and Driscoll had played together, of course, with Great Lakes. They had also played on the 1919 Hammond Pros team, which was uh, interesting. Driscoll joined the team later in that season. So there was a bit of a bidding war, and I think Ellis was probably told by the owner of the Staley's, maybe back off, we're trying to give you what you want in terms of players and giving them jobs, but we don't want to go overboard and, and give too much to one player, is my theory anyway. So, uh, but some of the bigger names of the time, the biggest that jumps out, of course, is Jim Thorpe. He was on the downslide of his career, of course, by that time. He was in his uh, mid-30s, I believe. Although he did play a game for the Cardinals in 1928, which was the uh, last game of his career. But he was one of the big stars. 
Um, the Chicago Tigers had a nice all-round player called Shorty Desjardins. Um, Lambeau and the Packers joined in 1921, of course. Desjardins, they had some, a great yeah. hockey name. Yes, isn't it? That guy had looked, when I first heard that name years ago, how to pronounce it correctly, so I don't want to look like a knucklehead. <laughs> there, there, there you go. <laughs> but sorry, keep going. <laughs> well, those are those a couple of the bigger names. Um, every team had its local hero, whether it was the Buffalo All-Americans and the Akron Pros. Um, the Chicago Tigers, Decatur Staley's had several names that uh, Jimmy Councilman, Frank Coughlin was a player coach for a while. So, but Driscoll brought with him at a time when the college coaches did not appreciate or approve of pro football. Uh, he brought a bit, a bit of a name because people knew him both from being an All-American or Northwestern, but also being such a prolific part of that Great Lakes football team in the Rose Bowl that they, they won in January of 1919. So he had the name recognition as well as the ability. So the idea was for Chris O'Brien, who didn't really own the Cardinals, but he was the manager of the Cardinals uh, since it was a club, a social club, as we mentioned, uh, gave him the opportunity to maybe think it's worth it to pay Patty Driscoll more money than hopes fans will come to see him. The only drawback was Normal Park didn't sit very many people and they didn't really own the parks. So they had to pay rent. Uh, so it was always a struggle for the Cardinals to, to break even or make money. But uh, without Driscoll, maybe they would have been have gone, gone away pretty quickly, but they, they stuck around. They're still around today. So I think it was a, a great marketing move by Chris O'Brien to bring on Patty Driscoll absorb that payment, probably didn't get any money. Uh, Chris O'Brien did not probably make any money himself. I'm sure of that. Uh, but he had Patty Driscoll, which was a name. And, and even then, the uh, Cardinals played a lot of home games. Eventually, they switched to Comiskey Park, which would draw more fans. Uh, but the big thing was in 1920, 1921, the beginning of that rivalry with the Decatur Staley's who became the Chicago Bears. And the first two games, they had 10,000, 12,000 people at some of those games, which was humongous. Wow. <laughs> you know, Joe, one of the things I'm interested in is we said that Driscoll was the first ever all-pro quarterback. But he might have made actually a bigger statement as a drop kicker. Can you talk about his ability as a drop kicker? I mean, where did that come from? How does, yeah, tell us about his ability as a drop kicker. Yeah, back in, in those days, offense pretty much did not include passing. The rules were strict. In some of the early rules, if you had an incomplete pass, it was considered a turnover and the ball was bigger. Uh, so the running game, which wasn't very creative either, um, was able to get you a couple of yards and a cloud of dust every time. So scoring was quite low. But with an accurate kicker with that round ball, rounder ball that we know today, that might be your only points of the game. In fact, I think it was 1922, the Cardinals uh, beat the Bears twice, six to nothing and nine to nothing. 
And all the points were dropkick field goals Interesting. by the Cardinals. Uh, four of them, I think, by Patty Driscoll. So the importance of having, like today, uh, a kicker could mean the difference between a win and a loss. Uh, but what's interesting is, as you know, when you have a drop kick, the ball hits that ground for a split second. You hope it bounces up correctly. In Chicago, it was raining and snowing uh, in the fall almost every year. And you see so many accounts of ball games where uh, there was one where you had to clear off a spot and try and dry it with your hands so Patty could drop the ball correctly. And you took a big chance, but it was the primary way of, of scoring. In fact, way back when, uh, around the turn of that century, a, a drop kick or a field goal was worth the same as a touchdown, five points. So that changed to six for a touchdown and three for a field goal eventually. But still, when you see some low-scoring games and until the game opened up after, I think, 1934, when the passing rules were changed by the pros, we had so many tie games every year, so many low-scoring games, so many shutouts. And I think there was a stretch when the Bears and the Cardinals played in the 20s. There were several games where the losing team never scored. So it was a, a, quite the opportunity if you had someone like Driscoll who could kick from almost unlimited range. And as you mentioned, a 55-yard drop kick um, way back when. <laughs> yeah. so. But good point. Um that you brought up that a lot of people might not know is the football was a much different shape than it is today. It was much more circular. It wasn't as spherical. And, you know, when you go back and you take a look back at the day, guys like a Benny Friedman, he really, opened up the game as far as passing is concerned because he knew he figured out how to pass that ball. A lot of guys, a lot of quarterbacks were not very consistent with the way they passed the ball because of the shape and the weight mm -hmm. of the ball was much different than it is today. It is and it led to some unusual circumstances in football. If you read some accounts of the games where we're, it would say that one team or the other filled the air with the football 10 times. And that was considered a lot of passes, completing two of them. Right. Uh, and that was a successful game. Sure. So uh, you're right. Until the, the ball changed and the rules changed a little bit, the offenses were pretty stagnant. And you might have some good runners like Patty Driscoll or Jim Thorpe who could break three and free and run. But, yeah, it was, uh, it was tough without having that passing game. So 1925, that was the big year for the Cardinals, their first big year. They went 12-2-1. They won the NFL championship, and Driscoll was in the middle of it all. 11 field goals, four touchdowns, 10 extra points. Um, he was the second-leading scorer in the league. On defense, that's really an area that we really haven't covered all that much. It's so hard because – statistics statistically speaking weren't really a big deal back then they didn't really keep a whole lot of defensive statistics but he scored on an interception talk about that season and just how integral Hattie Driscoll was to the success 
of the 1925 championship winning Chicago Cardinals. You know, once again, Driscoll was, as you mentioned, the leading scorer for the team and second in the league. Um, he did lead the league in scoring twice, I think in 23 and 26, after he left the Cardinals, unfortunately. Uh, but the team seemed to come together. They, Norman Berry was the coach. And again, compare 1925 to today, he was also the head coach of De La Salle High School in Chicago. So here's this championship team with a coach who coaches two different teams who had a rush between one practice to the other to get his team together. But they had uh, some decent players, of course. They had uh, a, a smallish line, uh, some bigger guys as well. But it was all – that was the season, of course, that Red Grange came on board for the NFL. And really, as we know, all know that really probably saved the league when the league went from playing in front of 1,500 people to the Bears drawing over 70,000 in New York to play the Giants. And so the Cardinals were um, nip and tuck all season long uh, for the championship. The Bears drew all the plaudits, all the newspaper coverage because of Red Grange joining the team the day after he completed his college career for Illinois when they played at Ohio State. The next day he signed with the Bears, although if you see uh, – Chris Willis's great book on Red Grange. We know that a lot of the negotiations with Grange were going on well before that, of course. And he was yeah, under lock and key. can't do that today. Yes. So uh, the season came down to, to the Cardinals really, really savoring the opportunity to win the championship. And as, of course, we know also it ended up in a bit of controversy which is still discussed today as to whether the Cardinals completely won the championship or did Pottsville win the championship. So that's worth the whole new weeks of discussion. But the uh, Cardinals were awarded the championship from the league and um, are recognized today as 1925 champions by the NFL based on their record that year. Okay, so yeah, so they win that championship. And again, for those don't know who don't know, the Cardinals have only won two championships in their in their long history, and that was the first one. Um, I'm really interested to know after this season, Driscoll left and he and he and he went to the Bears. What happened? Yeah. Why did he leave? Why would why did the Cardinals sell Patty Driscoll to the Bears? I mean you know, outside of Red Grange, this might be the best player in the in the NFL. Yeah, yeah. In fact, the Red Grange is the name that probably is responsible for Patty leaving the Cardinals after the 1925 season. Grange and his manager, Charles Pyle, also known as CC or Cash and Carry Pyle, uh, pretty much demanded a share of the Bears after that season. And George Hellis writes in his autobiography that well, he was willing to keep Grange on at whatever portion of the gate that he and Pyle demanded. But as for half ownership, he said, no, we had invested too much. So uh, Pyle went in front of the NFL board at the time, the owners, and requested, or I should say, demanded his own franchise. And he was turned down. So he took that opportunity to start a new league called the American Football League, I believe, in 1926. And Grange would be yeah, the big star. I think that was the first of 
three, actually three incarnations of the American football. League. Yes, yes. So the uh, Grange would plan a team based in New York that would compete with the Giants. And then uh, Pyle talked Joey Sternman, who was the brother of co-owner of the Bears, Dutch Sternman, to running, coaching, being an owner of the Chicago Bulls, a name which became familiar in another sport years later. And the Bulls were smart. They reserved Comiskey Park, the White Sox field, where the Cardinals had been playing. And so they had the bigger field, which forced the Cardinals back to normal parks, smaller gates, smaller number of attendees. But the big kicker was that the uh, New American Football League offered Patty Driscoll a large amount of money to jump leagues. And Hallis again mentioned in his autobiography that he knew Chris O'Brien of the Cardinals was hurting. He couldn't afford to match that offer. And so Hallis stepped in and talked to his old friend, Patty Driscoll, and talked him out of joining the Bulls and into coming over to the Bears. He paid, according to published reports, he paid Chris O'Brien $3,500, not bad, 1926, for the rights to Patty Driscoll. And then he gave Patty Driscoll $10,000 to play football, which was second, of course, to Grange on the Bears, but still a very lofty paycheck. And so that's how Driscoll ended up with the Bears. The Cardinals really couldn't afford to keep him with the new league trying to hire him, uh, hire Driscoll away. And so Hallis was finally able to talk and negotiate and get Driscoll over to the Bears. And he had wanted to get him back in 1920, of course. So they were finally reunited. And Driscoll rewarded Hallis by leading the NFL in scoring in 1926. And uh, had a happy career with, with Hallis. He didn't seem to lose a step when he was with the Bears. But that's really what happened and how uh, he came to join the Bears from the Cardinals. Tell us about his relationship with George Hallis. I mean, they were teammates all the way back with Great Lakes. And, you know, Hallis brings him over to the Bears. Later on, he becomes coach of the Bears. Um, tell us about the relationship between George Hallis and Patty Driscoll. Uh, from what I can determine, it was a very solid relationship going back to their Great Lakes days. It was so good that in 1922, Hallis offered Driscoll to be a partner with the Bears. And there are papers on file at the state of Illinois that shows John Driscoll as a owner of the Chicago Bears. So the state of Illinois thinks that Patty is an owner of the Bears. Uh, at the NFL meetings that following June, they told Hallis, stay away. Uh, Driscoll was still under contract to the Cardinals. So that led to a unique game in 1922. We talked about relationships, and you've probably heard me talk on this story before about Driscoll running around end in the game against the Bears, and Hallis and Joey Sterneman not only tackled him, but threw him face down into the ground in this big Thanksgiving Day game. Of course, Driscoll got up kind of groggy, and he started swinging and landed one on Joey Sterneman, who was only about five foot five. And uh, a riot ensued. And, and so it was probably one of the biggest riots in the history of pro football. Police had to come out and, and everything else. But it was kind of funny after the in his autobiography, again, George Ellis wrote that, yeah, it was a tough game. We lost six to nothing, but everyone had a great time. 
And uh, so Driscoll, I guess, forgave Hallis for that kind of nasty, ugly tackle on him in 1922, joined the Bears in 26. And a story a lot of people don't know that right after he was traded, Driscoll and Hallis became partners in a country club. They started a country club in the north suburbs of Chicago. So I think the relationship was very good. He stayed with the Bears uh, through the early 30s and eventually came back as an assistant coach, later a head coach, and finished out his uh, football career with the Bears. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, he became – he replaced Hallis as the coach of the Bears in 56. Mm -hmm. And his first year as a coach, they were pretty good. They went 9-2-1 in what was then known as the Western Conference – but they lost to the Giants, the New York Giants, in the championship. So a few questions here. After he was sold to the Bears, he only played four more years. What did he do immediately after his playing days were over? Yeah, he did a couple of things. One, like most players, they had these part-time jobs. And so uh, Patty was the football, basketball, and athletic director at St. Mel's High School in Chicago. And uh, he was able to lead St. Mel's, I think, to the National High School uh, Championship in basketball one year. And a while after that, he became the head coach at Marquette up in Milwaukee, head football coach. He was an assistant with the Cardinals for a season or two until I think it was 1941, that Hallis offered him an assistance job with the Bears, and he then stayed with them, and literally till when he passed away um, uh, many years later. So uh, he stayed in football, stayed in coaching, never really got into the oil business or the gas business like some were rented apartment buildings. He was a football guy through and through. What did did he enjoy his time as an assistant under Hallis? Seemed like he did. I, I've never uncovered any problems. Not that I've spent my whole time looking for it, but usually if you see problems with coaches and their assistants, it pops up somewhere. But the fact that he gave, when he decided to get out of head, Hellas, I mean, got out of head coaching again in 56, as you mentioned, there were a lot of candidates and people thought Hellas was too old at the time. And he and Driscoll were about the same age, about 60, 61. And instead, he went and gave Patty Driscoll the job, which shocked a few people. But it could either be that he was rewarding him for loyalty, which he probably was, or the fact that Hellas maybe just decided to take a couple of years off and come back and do it all over again. And he had a loyal guy there to hold the pieces together while he was gone. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Driscoll goes nine, two, and one, and then in fifty-seven, the Bears go five and seven, and Hallis returns to the sidelines. Why? Mm-hmm. And and how did Patty feel about this? Yeah, one of the things I did notice was that even when he was not coaching, Hallis was on the sidelines acting like a coach. And so some of the newspaper reports are talking about Hallis's antics on the sidelines during the games that if a call went against him and kicking the dirt and screaming at the referees, which he was really good at. And so Penny, in in this case, I'm thinking, yeah, he was probably kind of a caretaker for a couple of years. I'm not convinced Hellas meant to retire permanently, that he was going to stay there. But 
there was no problem when he decided to come back. In fact, I think Patty said something like, yeah, it's, it's a tough job being in charge of all these guys and the different responsibilities. And Hallis kept him on uh, in other positions within the organization, again, probably as a reward. So in answer to your original question, I think they got along very well. And I think they work well together and they respected each other. They were both old school uh, coming up uh, as they did through Great Lakes and through the infancy of the NFL. And Patty Driscoll was always there, a loyal, loyal sidekick that Hallis could rely on. And as I said, treated each other with respect. Yeah, he basically stayed with the team, like you said, the rest of his life. I mean, after that, mm-hmm. he stayed with the Bears in an executive position for the remainder of his career. Here's, here's something I'm really curious about, and I sort of broached the subject right at the start of today's episode. Hattie Driscoll was one of the greatest football players of his era, and I would argue that he doesn't get near the recognition as some of his contemporaries from, you know, that same general time period. You said Red Grange. You mentioned Jim Thorpe. The last words, Ernie Nevers. Why? Why does Driscoll fall short of the same recognition as those greats? One reason might be his seemingly quiet personality. And the fact that he didn't make a big splash. Grange made a big splash coming into the league, making all that money. Ernie Nevers made a big splash, scoring 40 points in one game, becoming the coach of the Cardinals. Uh, He was a good quote, uh, as they would say in the newspapers. Uh Driscoll was just successful all the time, consistent. As we said, scoring on the ground, scoring with his leg, never causing a problem. The biggest problem he ever caused, again, the old story, is Grange's first game when Patty consistently punted 18 times away from Red Grange. The fans were booing Grange coming off the field, and then Patty's fiance said, no, they're booing you, Patty, not poor Red. But that's probably the biggest controversy he ever got into. To you, Joe, what is the most surprising aspect to the career of Patty Driscoll? I think the ability to kick successfully, no matter what the field conditions. I'm watching the playoffs uh, going on now with the National Football League that uh, in the bowl games, and we see a lot of indoor stadiums and artificial turf and wonderful conditions, tarps covering the field. Here's a guy that was successful kicking in mud and snow and ice, and it didn't seem to bother him that he could do it no matter what the weather. Granted, his percentages were not as good as they are today. You know, when we talk about kicking three field goals in a game, because they kicked a lot, he may have missed four or five during the game as well. Uh, But they kept coming back because that was the way to score. So I, I think the fact that he was able to be so successful and consistently successful kicking the football in ugly, ugly conditions, playing in the northern part of the country in the early winter every single year. And uh, he never varied. He was always pretty successful. Now, when he gave him the ball, because of his dodging and dashing ability, as newspapers called it, he was able to consistently churn up some yardage for whatever team he was with. So, as we said earlier when we first started, his size, too. 
The guy was yeah. not big. And you think one big defensive guy could throw him to the ground. First, they had to catch him. So, elusive uh, <laughs> Eddie Driscoll. <laughs> hey, Joe, you know, like me, you're a podcaster. And you are a member of the Sports History Network. Tell us about your podcast and some of the topics you have coming up. Oh, thank you very much, Warren. Yeah, my podcast is called When Football Was Football. It focuses on the early days of pro football in the Chicago area. So we have covered topics like the only season for the Hammond, uh, excuse me, the Chicago Tigers in 1920. We've talked about the 1919 Hammond Pros called the million dollar team because they paid such high salaries. Of course, we found out later the owner bounced his checks to the players, but we'll forget about that. Uh, individual things like the wit and wisdom of tackle Chet Bulger of the Cardinals, uh, the spoken word of George Hallis. I dug up some of his best quotes over the years, talk about team travel. So um, those are some of the topics. We mentioned Joey Sternman tonight, who left the Bears in 1926, spent a year with the Chicago Bulls. So um, I wanted to find out what it was like to be a five foot five quarterback in the NFL. So uh, really try and go into a specific topic for a few minutes and dig deep and find something new that maybe hasn't been reported before. Very cool. I've listened to several of your podcasts. Love it. You do a great job. And you're also a great guest, and I want to thank you so much for spending some time with me again on Sports Forgotten Heroes to talk about, really, a forgotten hero, Hattie Driscoll. He certainly is, and thank you, uh, not only for having me, but thank you even more for remembering Patty Driscoll, one of the true greats of the NFL, of course. Close to my heart is who I consider the greatest player ever for the Cardinals, now based in Arizona, I believe. They love Chicago, so thank you for that. <laughs> you got it. Hey, Joe, thanks again. Thank you. As Joe and I discussed, record-keeping back in the early days of the NFL is nothing like it is today. But I will tell you this. Patty Driscoll was elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 1965. He is regarded as one of the greatest players of the 1920s, is a member of the 1920s All-Decade Team. In 1923, he set a then-NFL record with 27 points in one game on four touchdowns and three extra points. He was All-NFL six times. He is regarded as one of the 100 greatest Chicago Bears of all time. He's in the Arizona Cardinals Ring of Honor, and per pro football reference, Driscoll rushed for 25 touchdowns and scored touchdowns six other ways over the course of his career. He also kicked 63 extra points and 51 field goals. Certainly a great all-around player. Once again, I'd like to thank my guest today, Joe Ziemba. Give his podcast a listen if you can, When Football Was Football, and you can find it on the Sports History Network. And I'd like to thank every one of you for listening today, and I certainly hope you come back, and I'll see you again next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.